Welcome to Group Talk. Four shows, one podcast from the Small Group Network focusing on topics relevant to small group ministries. Whether you're in a church of 100 or 10,000, whether you're a volunteer or staff, we want to support, encourage, and equip you to lead well. So relax, listen, and enjoy Leadership Journey with Bill Search. Welcome back to the Leadership Journey. I'm your host, Bill Search, and it is a privilege, it's an honor to have a little bit of your time today. Well, the conversation that I'd like to have with you in this whole big topic of leadership is about where we're going. What's the destination? What are we looking towards? Any journey, unless you're just wandering around, involves a map of some kind. You got to know where it is that you want to arrive at. And for those of us that are in the church, as we think about the context of the leadership journey, there's a word we typically think of. It's a word that maybe gets a bit overused. But if you've been around the church for any length of time, you've heard the word. And most of us engaged in the world of small groups, we know this word very well. The word is discipleship. It's kind of our bread and butter, isn't it? I mean, this is what we do. At least it's what we think we do. When people ask us in church circles, what do we do? We may say small groups, but oftentimes we'll say things like, "We're well, we're making disciples. We're helping people grow as disciples. And that feels kind of comforting to use a word like that. It's a word that we see in the Bible. If you were with me last time, I had the privilege of interviewing Nick and Marjorie Allen. They're the authors of a terrific new book, XYZ of Discipleship. I can't recommend that book enough. If you're a parent and you have kids that are uh, of the coming up generation, maybe you have kids in college or just out of college, those uh, millennials or Gen Y or Z, I don't even know what you call them, but if you're like me, I'm a Gen Xer. And so we're always trying to figure out our kids. That book will help you figure out your kids. But the book itself and the topic XYZ of discipleship got me thinking about discipleship. And from time to time, I just drop back and ask myself a simple question. What is it? I remember sitting around with a group of ministers at a church I served back in Louisville, Kentucky, and there was probably a dozen of us us in the room, and we all were whatever you you might call. So I would say we were program directors. We all had various large programs that we oversaw in a very large church. And what was very interesting is the topic that we were all sitting around and discussing was this one, discipleship. And uh, I remember one of my colleagues, really bright, sharp, seminary-educated guy, he just threw out the question. He says, let's all go around the circle and answer this question. Have you been discipled? And the person to my right started, and then they went counterclockwise, meaning in the circle, I was going to be the last person to answer. And I was getting a little antsy. If you know me, I can be uh, I can be a bit of a contrarian at times. It's not my fault, I'm told, because on the Enneagram, I'm an eight. And so part of my personality, I guess, is to sort of question processes. I don't always do that. Most of the time, I don't do that. But sometimes, I just can't help myself. And in this particular instance, I just struggled. Because I remember the guy to my right, almost in tears, sharing that he had never been discipled. And sure enough, as the individuals around that circle began to share their story one by one, in tears, some of them shared how they had never been discipled. And then 
it ended at me. And I just said, you know, what strikes me is that nobody in this circle has been discipled. And yet somehow every one of us in this circle is having a pretty significant impact in ministry. And I didn't say that pridefully. It was just a reflection of a reality. We all had big responsibilities. I said, each one of us around the circle, I, I knew everybody around the circle personally. Each one of us around the circle have a deep love for God. We want to see other people grow in their deep love for God. Each one of us around that circle was a maturing person. Some around that circle were really mature. Pretty much all of them were more mature than I was. But I pointed out the obvious. None of us felt like we had been discipled. And yet, we were pretty good examples of disciples. And so, it it got me thinking back then. So, fast forward 10 years later, more than today, I still think about this question. Is it possible that we have a problem? And the problem is a problem of discipleship. I don't mean that we're doing it wrong. I mean that we don't know what it means. The real problem of discipleship is a terminology problem, I think. So go with me here. Before you shut this off and go, this guy is an idiot. I am an idiot, but I may not be wrong about this. So let's just take this journey together and you think about it with me. And then if you really don't like it, and I'm going to repeat this later, reach out to me. Whether you like this or not, I can easily be found. I'm just at Bill Search on Twitter, and you can DM me anytime. I'd be happy to respond. Or in the comments section, once this gets posted to our Facebook group, by all means, you know, call me out and tell me I know nothing. I'm all ears. I'm not easily offended. But let's take this little walk together, shall we? Let's go back to the first usage in an English Bible. The first English Bible that we know of, that we really think of, is a first English Bible. It wasn't the King James. It was the William Tyndale Bible, 1522. It got him in a lot of trouble. But William Tyndale, in let's just pick on the Great Commission here, because that's the verse that oftentimes people go to when Jesus gives the what, Great Commission. We call it Great Commission because it's a pretty great one. And in the Great Commission, William Tyndale, he doesn't say, uh, go into all the world and make disciples. William Tyndale in English in 1522 said um, something akin to ye shall go and teach them in all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so on. You can look it up. Tyndale Bible is online. You can Google it. You can find it. Check my work here. And for the next 300 years, every English translation of the Bible uses teach in the Great Commission. Go into all the world and teach all nations. It doesn't use the word disciple. It doesn't say make disciples. And when the King James Bible came out in 1611, wouldn't you know it? That one also says teach. In fact, the updated King James Bible, the, the 2016 edition, doesn't say make disciples. That King James Bible says teach. In fact, um, it wasn't until 1808, and it was an American, Charles Thompson, not with a P like Thompson, but Thompson. He was a, a great patriot in the American Revolutionary War, and he served in the uh, Congress as a secretary, and uh, upon his retirement, he spends the next several years, in fact, overlapping with his work as a patriot 
he uh, spends his time taking the original Greek New Testament and then the Greek Old Testament, we call it Septuagint, and he made a translation of the Bible. It's the, uh, the Charles Thompson translation of the Bible. And it's fascinating in 1808, near as I can tell. Okay, so check my work here. Someone smarter than I am is listening to this right now and says, Bill, you're all wrong. It, it appeared back here before this. But the earliest I can find in English is 1808. Charles Thompson translates, and he says, make all the nations disciples. And this is the beginning. From this point on, many English translations start to say in the Great Commission, make disciples. Now, the question is, why? Why? Now, some people would say, well, it's a better translation. And certainly, if you look at most evangelical commentators right now, they will just take it wholesale value. They won't even question whether or not it should be translated a different way. I do not know if that's because they're great scholars or if all great scholars do. They just find their favorite great scholar and then they just repeat that great scholar. I don't know. I'm not a great scholar. But what I will tell you is that there was another English translation that came out in 1833. And it was released by a man who arguably was one of the greatest intellects of the English language. His name was Noah Webster. We know him as the dictionary guy. But Noah Webster, in 1833, he goes back to the old way and translates the Great Commission to teach all nations. Now, you could argue that Webster has a pretty good command of language, ancient, other, and English. And maybe maybe that's a good translation. Now, the internet's a really amazing tool, and I'm a big fan ever since it came out. I've been a fan of the internet since it was dial-up modem. Do you remember that? If you're old enough, you remember that. Good old days. Well, the internet, uh, about 10 years ago, Google came up with a tool that explores keywords and frequency of keywords using those keywords in books. So it doesn't search the internet, it searches books. And it goes back uh, centuries. And so you can look up keywords in a multitude of languages. But in English, if you look up the word disciple in this program, and it's called the Google Books Ngram View, N is in the letter N, G-R-A-M, Ngram View. So Google Books Ngram View, you can look it up, check my work on this. You know when the word disciple was most common in print books? You're probably thinking, well, it was probably last year. I mean, there's a ton of books about discipleship coming out. It was probably, it was probably 2019, maybe it's 2020, maybe it was 2015. No, it was 1829. 1829 is the year when the word disciple shows up a bunch in books. Now, I don't know what that has to do with anything. Actually, I have a, big, a bit of a theory. My theory is this, is that somewhere in the 1800s, that word disciple makes a bit of a comeback. Now, you might ask, why, why would it make a comeback? And the reason it would make a comeback is because it wasn't a great word. That is, it's, it's, it's not that the concept's a bad concept. I'm saying that the word's not a great word. Because the word disciple is not an English word. The word is a very old word. It's a, of Latin origin, near as we can tell. 
the etymologists that etymology that's the people who that's like the the discipline of the history and the study of words where they came from the the etymologists they they know a lot in fact there's some words that uh, never change meaning and they jump from one language to another language to another language so for instance one of my favorite greek words that jumped into english and it has never changed its meaning in over 2000 years is the word moron the word moron is an old greek word it was in old greek attic greek it was in koine greek and it's in english moron i don't know if every language uses the term moron there's a concept called moron in every language but in English and in ancient Greek, it means the exact same thing. When I said the word moron, you're like, yeah, I know, a, I know a person or two like that. Well, if we use etymology and study the word disciple, if you go back to Latin, it's, it, they kind of have some disagreement, but most people say it came from one of two places from one word, which is deceer in Latin, which is where we get our word discern. In other words, to kind of figure it out, to learn, um, or from the word discipulus, which probably discipulus is actually from the Latin discern. So that word probably is the next step from discern, but discipulus in Latin is probably where we get our word pupil from because pupils at the back end of discipulus, you can kind of hear it in there. And uh, in an old French, there's disciple. I don't know if I'm just kind of trying to do my best Pink Panther accent. Disciple. And old English, it just became disciple. Now, why am I going through all this? If I hope I didn't lose you yet. I hope, I hope, I hope I didn't lose you. So the Roman Empire, which pretty much dominated most of Europe and much of England, well, they spoke a variety of languages, but Latin was their favorite language. And for centuries, Latin was a, a pervasive language all around Europe. So it shouldn't surprise any of us that Latin words dropped into Spain, they dropped into France, they dropped into England, and sometimes they got co-opted by the languages and sometimes they got left alone by the languages. But what we do know is in the Old English, the word disciple was not common. It was not commonly used. It was, in fact, used somewhat infrequently. It was always used, almost always used, in regards to religious faith. It stayed in English mostly as a religious word. Okay. We're about 15 minutes in, and you're going, where is this going? <laughs> I thought we were talking about leadership and destinations, and we started talking about disciple, and now we're talking about Latin and French, and Bill's trying to do a French accent, and it's terrible. Before you turn it off, here's the problem. Words convey meaning. Words convey meaning, except when they don't. Except when the word doesn't really convey much. During this whole talk, I've wanted to use this quote, and so I'm going to use it now. I'm sure you've seen the movie Princess Bride. If you haven't, shut this thing off right now and dedicate the next two hours of your life to watching The Princess Bride, because you've obviously been living under a rock. You need The Princess Bride in your life. Okay, I'm only talking to probably maybe one person, because everybody else has seen this movie. And there's this great scene in the movie where Vicini, he's the mastermind of kind of comical evil, and, and Vicini keeps using the word inconceivable. And finally, at some point, about halfway into the movie, Inigo Montoya, who's the great Spaniard swordsman, he goes, oh, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Because Vicini's using the word really in 
times that it's not really appropriate. Vicini should have said, I don't understand, not inconceivable, totally conceivable. But my point is this, is that sometimes people use a word and they don't really understand what the word means, but it sounds cool. So they keep using it over and over. And Vicini did that with inconceivable. And I think church people do that with disciple. I think that when push comes to shove, they just throw that word in there just because they don't know what else to say. Maybe we don't need a Latin word. Maybe, maybe we don't need a new word. Maybe what we need is an old word, an old English word, an old original word, maybe. See, while this whole time I've been talking about English and I've been talking about Latin, if, if you know Greek, you might have already known that the word, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, methetes, is, is a, a learner, a student. That's what it is in Greek. And that's why so many of the early English translators just said, go into all the world and teach them, in, instruct them. And maybe those are words that could be helpful to us in this topic. Maybe old words that actually convey a concrete meaning, teaching, instruction. Now, some would argue, well, that's lifeless. I'm not so sure. You certainly can teach poorly. You can instruct in the most boring, lifeless manner. But we've all been privileged at some point or another, to have excellent teachers, excellent instructors, people that made even the most dull subjects come to life. And so um, over the coming sessions together, when, um, when I'm not interviewing people or onto something else, we're going to come back to this. I'm not done with this. I think we really need this. I think we need to get clear about what it is we're trying to do. I'll leave you with this. This is interesting. Is partway into the book of Acts, the word disciple drops out of use. It just stops. They use it, and then they don't use it anymore. And it never appears in Paul's writings. It's not in the epistles. There's a call to Christ-likeness. There's a call to obedience. There's a recommendation. There's a... Uh, exhortation to live a life that's honoring to God. There's a push towards maturity and endurance and faithfulness and fidelity. There's these strong descriptor words. Maybe that's why Paul didn't use the word much or in his writings at all. Maybe that's why. Maybe, maybe it's because what we truly need is clarity, is the simple clarity of what a life dedicated to Christ looks like. So what do you think? Do you think I'm crazy? Do you think I, um, do you think I, uh, have misrepresented or I have some holes? There's definitely some holes. I'm telling you, I know them better than you do. However, I would love to hear from you. People like me always say that, but I mean it. I want to hear from you. DM me on Twitter at Bill search, or, uh, as I mentioned earlier, comment in the uh, section of the comments on the uh, small group network Facebook group. That's a great place to have dialogue. I would love for us to not only talk about how to form groups and how to encourage our leaders and how to put 
groups together by using stuff that you put in a box. I would love all those. I absolutely, I read and I think I like every one of those comments. So if you're listening and you wonder, do people read what I post at the small group network? I do. I love the real practical stuff, but I would love for us on some of these posts to have some of these conversations, some of these heftier things, these foundational things. Because I think the closer that we can get, the clearer we can get to ultimate destination points, what it is we're trying to do, I think if we could do that, I think we could see some real progress. I think we could see some real transform churches, certainly transform lives, and indeed transform groups. So with that, I'm going to sign off. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to joining with you again on the leadership journey next month. Hey, Small Group Network family, Jason Banzoff here, Group Talk producer and Small Group Network creative arts director. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Leadership Journey, and thank you so much to Bill Search for the great episode. Now, before we go, let's talk about events. The Small Group Network is storming out of COVID-19 with a slew of strategic training events slated for 2021. Our first event of the new year will be our Accelerate Small Group Workshop in Houston, January 26th and 27th, and you still have time to lock in the early bird price through October 27th. Next, we have our annual lobby gathering conference held at the stunning Rancho Capistrano Retreat Center in SoCal, February 23rd through the 25th. The lobby is an out-of-the-box small group networking event where we create environments for small group point people to relax and connect together in casual conversations about small group ministry, much like they would in the church lobby over a cup of coffee. You will leave refreshed and armed with more ideas than you can handle. Now get $125 off the current price now by using FLASH SALE. All caps. Again, that's FLASH SALE. Through the end of this month, visit smallgroupnetwork.com forward slash events to lock in these great savings today. And thank you for listening to Group Talk. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and get new episodes downloaded automatically. Also, if you enjoy this program, please take a few minutes to give us a positive rating on iTunes so that other small group point people can find us more easily. We encourage you to visit our website at smallgroupnetwork.com to access our library of free resources, connect to a huddle with other small group ministry leaders in your area, read our blog articles, or join us on our Facebook group. Don't forget to use the hashtag SGNet when engaging with your social media channels. Thank you for your support.